Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Asian Americans. Uh, we took a couple weeks off. And so welcome back. It's February 9th, and this is episode 94 with my friend Annie Lin. And so we're excited to be back. We are on pace to get to episode 100 on March 2nd. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. If you found me or found us through Clubhouse, a big welcome to you. And if you are not following us on that platform yet, uh, join us. And you can just look for me at Jerry Wan or look for the Asian Americans Clubhouse where we are going to be hosting uh, amazing conversations that you're used to here on The Asian Americans and even some ones that we're excited to uh, try out with the new format of live audio. And so I'm excited to uh, share this conversation with Annie. Uh, she's building Asian American media and, and storytelling platforms just like we are. And we're so excited to be able to share her story. And wanted to highlight and shout out our friend, Frank Law, who is the owner of Be Bright Coffee, who is a big supporter of the show. It's a Korean-American family-owned uh, brand-new coffee business located here in Los Angeles. And so we encourage you to check them out. Just go to BeBrightCoffee.com and uh, let them know that you heard about it from us. And it's one of my favorite coffees that I've tried in a long time. So check out BeBrightCoffee.com. And thanks again for tuning in to The Year's Americans. We'll see. Uh, we'll do two episodes a week going forward until March 3rd. And we are so excited to share these next few episodes with you. Thanks again for joining. And here now is my conversation with Annie Lin. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Asian Americans. And whenever you're listening to this and from wherever, and hopefully you're listening to this in a better state of mind and a better hopeful mindset as in 2021, you are off to a great start to make this uh, the best year ever. I know a lot of us went into 2020 with that same mindset. And then COVID and racism and idiot politicians hit us in the head and said, not so fast. So we learned a lot of lessons in 2020. Uh, we also built a lot of things in 2020. One of the things that we really built in 2020 collectively are a lot of relationships, virtually and digitally, as we've learned to cope and to pivot and to manage and adapt. Um, but we also uh, built our own voices and built our own communities to find our own voice and what really matters. Particularly in the Asian American community, I think we did a really good job with just building communities and, and building platforms to share our stories that really matter. So excited to share the stage here today with my friend Annie Lin, who is the founder of Alaya. That's A-L-I-A, which stands for Asian Lives in America, which is a weekly newsletter dedicated to uplifting and elevating the stories of Asian women here in America and beyond. And so really excited to hear about her background as she is a global citizen with her education here in the States and to learn about how all this came about. So Annie, it is my pleasure to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So how has 2020 been for you? Or I guess it's 20, just to be clear, we're recording this on the 28th, so it's still 2020 <laughs> when we're talking. Um, yes. what, what are some things that you've learned this year and that have become very clear to you? Oh, wow. So much. I don't even know where to begin. I think the start of 2020, you know, February until March was great and everyone was having a wonderful time. And I think I really recognized that things were going downhill when I saw that it hit China um, because I have a lot of family members in China and I saw kind of the lockdown that they went through. And I remember the first case that um, hit America and I was already like running to the store and grabbing masks and everyone was like, you're crazy. We're going to be fine. <laughs> and fast forward kind of 10 months later, here we are. Um, I think we've learned a lot. There has been a lot of reckoning, um, a lot of awakening, kind of mm -hmm. had to do a lot of unlearning for myself. Um, yeah. And yeah, I think everyone has had this sort of shared experience. And I'm really grateful that people have been able to connect over virtually over Zoom. Um, and I'm just grateful. It's made me kind of realize what I prioritize in life more and just appreciating the little things in life more. Yeah, I, I think it's, yeah. If you haven't come out of 2020 with a certain new appreciation for relationships and human connection, virtual as they may be, I hope you find that in 2021, folks, because I think we've really built a strong foundation to share our stories uh, through podcasts in my case and a newsletter in Annie's case. But more important than the content is really the context in which our stories are shared and for us to really find community of like-minded folks who have similar experiences that we grew up with and experienced today and to really find community there. So um, to learn about more about how all this came about and the Annie of today, you mentioned that you had family back in China. So 
tell us a little bit more about your journey um, growing up. Where did you grow up? And tell us a little bit more about how you saw the world from where you grew up. Yeah, for sure. So I was actually born in China in a tiny, tiny town called Dozhou in the province of Shandong. And I moved to Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, um, the capital of Malaysia, when I was about six years old. My parents got divorced. And so my mom remarried and we moved to Kuala Lumpur. And I studied there until I was 18. And then that's when I went off to college in Boston, where I studied journalism at Northeastern um, for four years. And then I went on to straight to do grad school at Northwestern in Chicago, also focusing on journalism and specializing in magazines. Um, so that's kind of pretty much been my like education and where I've grown up location-wise. What was the spark for you to want to share stories? Was there a particular thing that happened or, yeah, what, what, what made you want to become a journalist and tell other people's stories? That's a great question. Um, I think I would have to bring it all the way back to when I was just moving to Malaysia when I was seven. And uh, disclaimer, like I did not know a single word of English back then. Um, so I remember going to the supermarket with my mom and picking up some magazines and books. And that's when I really kind of picked up this passion for reading. And I was like, looking and flipping through all these magazines. And like, one day I just kind of was like, what if I was able to do that? And that kind of kickstarted the dream of being in journalism. And I really enjoyed kind of writing and storytelling. So more the creative writing side throughout like high school. Um, and when I was like choosing majors, I was kind of deciding what would fit well with my creative side and also like with English literature to kind of have a blend of the two and also to, um, not, you know, restrict myself to kind of one topic because I feel like journalism is quite broad. Like we have, I know people who are in all sorts of fields in journalism. You can do sports, you can do business, you can do fashion, you can do pretty much anything. And so that's what I really loved about it. Um, and gradually, like throughout college, I was kind of still, you know, that's when you kind of discover yourself and you find out what you really want to write about. So I joined a lot of like student organizations, ran a lot of like magazines, wrote for a lot of publications. And I really, really enjoyed that. Um, just seeing a story come to life from really from scratch, you know, like just a conversation like this, you're talking to someone and throughout each step, you know, you form a story, you ask them about their life, um, you share their stories, share their words. And that's really, I think what I love about journalism is that it's not really about me. Like I'm trying to share other people's stories and that's what I'm trying to do through the newsletter as well. Um, and more recently, I've been kind of focusing more on stories that are, you know, like COVID related or about um, like undocumented immigrants and how they've been affected. And so and right now I'm writing stories about refugees and migrants. And so kind of trying to shed light on those stories as well. Give us a little bit more context on Malaysia. Um, it's a country that I'm not too familiar with the culture I'm not too familiar with, I think. I've learned about it in recent years due to unfortunate events that have happened with, with the scandals and, and the like. And, and so many of our listeners, uh, some of our listeners may be from Malaysian background, uh, most are probably not. But as a, a Chinese born person living there at starting at age seven through uh, undergrad or university, what was that experience like? Give us a little bit of context on how growing up as an inter-Asian immigrant, I guess would be the correct term. Um, how, how was that experience and how did that help you see the world a little bit differently than maybe somebody who didn't have that experience? I love talking about Malaysia. I think it's such an underrated country. Um, and we call ourselves kind of third culture kids as kids who grew up in cultures who which are different from their parents. And Malaysia is a very multicultural place. It's mainly made up of um, local Malaysians and Indians and Chinese people. And so mm. that infused with so many different languages, like everyone's like trilingual or they can speak four or five languages. It's crazy. The food is amazing there. The weather is like summer all year round. Um, and I just really enjoyed life there. Like, if anyone was to decide to move anywhere, I'd be like Southeast Asia, do it. Um, and I went to international school there. So I really felt like, although I got a great education and I'm so, so grateful for it. Like I wouldn't change a thing. Like I absolutely am so thankful for my parents 
to send me to international school and to have all those opportunities and exposure to different cultures um, and the opportunities to like travel even when I was very young. And it kind of felt like I was living in a bubble. So that really like switched when I went to college and it like made me realize like there's this whole other world out there. And that's kind of when I found like I really got to discover myself or mm. learn more about myself. Cause in international school, it was a British um, curriculum and it was kind of, kind of strict in a way that like you had to wear uniforms. Like um, there were a lot of rules, like you couldn't dye your hair, you couldn't paint your nails. You had to wear shoes that were like 70% white, all these like ridiculous kind of rules that as a kid, you don't really realize, but I've been kind of having these conversations about my childhood a lot in therapy mm -hmm. and my therapist kind of being like, you know, does, what did that do to you? You know, how did that change you in a way? Um, you know, like people telling you that you're not supposed to do this or not supposed to do that, like always being told off. Um, and I feel like that has really restricted me in a way to be like, what do I really want to do? And so I really only had maybe five years of trying to be myself, I think. And what did you find out about yourself and the community during that time? Um, yeah, I think I really got to be more outspoken. Like as a kid, I was always a super quiet kid. Like on every report card, teachers would be like, she's really polite, but she doesn't talk a lot. And now like you couldn't tell me to shut up because I would just always be very active in class and in college. And um, I would love to join a lot of like student organizations and just kind of start conversations with people that I don't know. Um, and really discovering my personality and searching from being more of an introvert to like an extrovert um, and kind of not being so strict on myself either. Cause I think I'm typically very hard on myself. And so to really allow myself to be okay with making mistakes or trying different things, not following the conventional path, um, things like that. And, and share with us a little bit about the decision to come to the United States to study um, what was behind that decision and how did that fit into your goal of wanting to tell stories? Yes, um, that's an interesting story because up until probably a week before decisions were to be sent in, I was still set on going to university in the UK because um, I had gotten an offer from there and a lot of my friends were going there and I was like, this will be great. And then last minute, I kind of, something just inside me, like almost like a gut feeling was telling me like, you should go to America. I had never hmm. actually been to America before then, not even a visit. And so when I went for college, I actually went alone. Nobody came with me. I have no family in America. Um, and I just took my suitcase and I was like, I'm, I'm on my way <laughs> to college by myself. Um, never been to the country. And that was just kind of, I guess, a very signifying moment for me where I was like, I'm doing this alone. Like I'm being independent. I'm really going out of my comfort zone, something that's going to challenge me. Cause I think going to the UK, I would have just stuck with my group of friends, you know, probably didn't really go beyond that. So I really like taking myself out of my comfort zone. I've been, and, I, and since then I've been trying to do that ever since, but also, uh, based on like the journalist, the journalism aspect, I think because coming from like an environment like China and Malaysia, where I wouldn't say free speech is really their priority. I think I can say that. That's fair. Um, and I think that's an objective statement, yeah. It is, yeah. I think so. There's a lot of censorship. And so I didn't really feel like I got to express myself truly there. And, you know, for what America is symbolized as for anyone outside of the country, it represents a lot of freedom and free speech. And I think that's one of the aspects that I liked about it was that I didn't, you know, have to stick to one route. Whereas in the UK, you know, they have like your three years pretty much set out for you about what you want to study. But in the US, I was able to, you know, take minors, take electives, you know, go abroad, do internships, like pretty much anything I wanted. I got to structure my own like four years there. Um, that's what I really enjoyed about it. And how did that manifest itself? What did you do? And so I want to put this in the context of now you run in addition to your day job, um, you run a newsletter focused on sharing stories of Asian women in America and beyond. Where did you find that passion to share our stories versus your global citizen? I want to share stories of just about anything. Why, why that genre in particular? Totally. Um, so this came about as an idea for my master's project, um, which was a final project for a master's degree. And at the time, um, we were pretty much allowed to do anything we wanted. And I was like, 
I could just write one story, but why not share stories of other people and many, many stories that I can keep doing that it doesn't have to be a one-time project that ends there with my degree that I can keep continuing. Um, and I just really like the idea of that because first of all, when I was looking for things to read myself and to subscribe to, like there are great newsletters out there, don't get me wrong, but nothing really catered to this community of Asian American women. And um, I couldn't really find anything out there that was similar to this. And I've heard that from other people too, where they say, you know, growing up, I really wish I had something like this to read. And I feel the exact same way because I wanted to see stories of women that looked like me. It's simple as that. I don't think that's sure. a huge, you know, task or huge ask, you know, for the media industry, but it sadly is lacking that we don't see women of color enough in media being the spotlight or being on covers. And I mean, I think it's changing and it's really starting, but I really just don't see any stories of Asian women out there in like the big titles and the major publications that everyone reads. Why do you think that is? <sighs> That's a very complex question. Cause I think there's so many layers to it. Like, first of all, you know, it's, a lot to do with just the model minority and being like, oh, all Asians are great. Like, why should we spotlight this one person when there's a better person? Um, and it's really not about that, I think. And I think we're just looked over because like, we're always overachieving, you know, we're always doing something great. Like people are just like, oh, they're doing their thing. You know, we don't, we shouldn't spotlight them. Or I don't know, the media industry is very complicated. And I think it has to do with also what people would pick up off the newsstands or what people would click on. And typically, you know, that would be a glossy image of like a white model on the cover of a magazine. And sadly, that is still the case. You, But you've had a, a global experience and, you know, uh, and if, if zero through seven is, is a proper experience of memory. But I take to people who... Again, I, I don't. I agree with you wholeheartedly that I think we're we're grossly misunderrepresented in in Western media, whether they be American or, or European. But I think people forget that you know in America people sort of write us off because we're a small percentage of the overall population, right? Um, America's about three hundred and sixty, we're about four to five percent, so it comes to about you know eighteen million is a number that we generally throw around. But then people forget that globally we're four billion people, and that. There's a lot of resonance with not just Asians living abroad, but even Asians in Asia who, like you, uh, might be living in a different Asian country than you grew up with, or because the world is so globalized, like they exist in Western lifestyles and cultures within their countries, right? So if you go to any metropolitan city in Asia, Tokyo, Hong Kong, Seoul, Beijing, Shanghai, like uh, Kuala Lumpur, like it's pretty Western, right? And, and they work for multinational companies, they speak English at work. And so when we share these stories of feeling othered or feeling discriminated against or the different things that make our Amer Asian American experiences unique in our own mind, the world is our audience and we're 60% of the world. And I don't know what exact percentage of the 4 billion speak English well enough to listen to a podcast or read a newsletter, but it's got to be close to a billion in my opinion. And so I, I personally think it's hilarious that, you know, it's a sort of like when Director Bong said like, oh, yeah, you know, Oscars, that's a local award, right? Like, but <laughs> yeah. American exceptionalism, like, oh, it's the best thing in the world. But like from a global <laughs> perspective, it's like, oh, that's cute. You guys got your own little country award. That's not a global stage. And, yeah. and I think in the same way, so I, I don't get upset. I don't get as upset as I used to. And would love to get your perspective on this, Annie, is like if American media companies or platforms don't want to amplify the Asian voice. You know, obviously there's a bit of like include us and we need to be represented and that's cool. But like you're playing, I want to play a different game altogether. And like you play checkers, I'll play chess. And I want to go after the bigger audience that you can't get to because you don't understand what it means to be Asian or you don't have the resonance with the audience because you and I look differently and can speak from different experiences that will hit home with some of our audiences that you know, somebody as talented or as eloquent as they may be, don't have that same bond. But how do you view that world? Like, because hearing Asian stories in America in a narrow sense is an insane thing to want to get into, right? Because like you said, 
there weren't, there still aren't, there's a, there's a lot, but there's not enough Asian specific, Asian American specific storytellers. You do it not for, and again, I'm not making light of the fact that it feels good in your soul. Obviously I run an Asian media, Asian American media company. You do as well. So let's put that aside for, from a business and growth perspective. Like mm-hmm. how do you see the market? How do you see the opportunity? How do you see the growth of sharing our stories in this context? Yeah, I think it's really interesting that you brought up those figures because on a global scale, Asians do you know take up a lot of the market and these international companies, media companies are really probably missing out on a lot because I think people in Asia look up to the multinational companies that are in America and the stories that they produce. Like when, say, I'm shopping in like Shanghai, I would see magazines from the U.S., as well as local magazines. And people are more likely to gravitate towards a lot of the international magazines as something that they look up to. I think that has a lot to do with sort of a lot of internal issues that we're still grappling with, as in, you know, the ideal beauty standard or the ideal image um, is still leaning towards the West rather than the East. I mean, it's changing with things like the Korean wave um, and the rise in like the popularity of East Asian culture. But otherwise, I think we still look towards places like Hollywood and we still, you know, consume a lot of American media. But I think Mm -hmm. in terms of you talking about the growth of storytelling in particular for Asian Americans, I don't think the business side of things is really what I focus on, at least for the newsletter. If I always say if there's one person out there who has read a story and has felt that has helped them, I think I've fulfilled my goal. Like that's ultimately what I want to do. Um, And I think if, you know, people like us are not telling those stories, then nobody really is. And there needs to be somebody who does that. And so really from, you know, although we might just be, 4% of the population, that 4% is still very significant. And that's still millions and millions of people who their stories deserve to be told. And I think that's what, yeah, we're trying to achieve here. And I think, yeah, it's it's a 4% is small, but still 18 million is big enough where like, if, if we're talking podcasts or newsletters or any, any media business, right? Like, the critical mass that you need for it to be successful from any sort of measure of success, you don't need a whole lot of people, right? Like, and and I think that's the other thing that like, oh, it's not big enough, but I think it's also um, an opportunity of, you know, is that community being currently served and and what are the opportunities to create something that isn't being served right now? And I think, you know, luckily we haven't seen a whole lot of performative stuff from the major news media companies of like, oh, we're just going to, slap an Asian American logo on here and, and create something that we think they need. Mm-hmm. Luckily, you know, um, whether it's NBC Asian America or, you know, I think Huffington Post had an Asian American desk, like at least those, they're, they're smart enough. And, you know, thanks to the great work of our friends at the Asian American Journalists Association, like they're pushing these things to have actual, meaningful, uh, authentic stories behind it. So mm-hmm. I, I think that's fantastic. W- what is your goal in the world of journalism, Annie, and as, as it relates to, obviously, your newsletter. And, and before we talk about that, I guess, share with us a little bit about Alaya. You said it was a part of a graduate, graduate school project. You're continuing it after the fact. What was your goal when you started it? And has that evolved today and what you want to have it achieve for you? Mm-hmm. I think the starting goal for it was really to channel all the energy and the emotions that I was facing into something productive and to create an outcome for it. Because so backtracking a little bit, the master's project preparation kind of started in April. um, And that was right around the time um, when the murder of George Floyd happened and there was the Black Lives Matter movement. And so there was a lot of conversations that we had in class that were you know, very interesting and people 
were kind of struggling with how to express themselves. And I was facing the same problem. And my professor said this really interesting thing was like, you know, not only are we dealing with the repercussions of the pandemic and grieving losses, but we're also having to cope with these racial justice issues that are not, you know, that people are not really paying attention to enough. And that was really the beginning of it was just like trying to channel all that energy that wasn't able to be kind of processed in some way emotionally and to channel it into uplifting the community and delving also into kind of my Asian identity as well. Because I think I've learned a lot and I've grown a lot through this process. I just having one conversation with another Asian woman and hearing it from their perspective and also people who have a wealth of experience themselves. And I feel like I've learned a lot just through them and through hearing their stories. Um, and I guess my goal in the long term is to really expand this because it is, although not my full-time job, it's something that I see as a passion project. I would love to continue it and expand it, get more people to contribute to it and really make this sort of a community effort and to open it up to people who want to share their stories, maybe themselves, and that it doesn't have to go through me and make it like almost that community journalism aspect. Yeah. I think you have a fantastic and, and very unique perspective. So I want to ask you this. What were some of your assumptions or preconceived notions about Asian American identity and our culture, looking at it from your, your pre-college Asian, Asian perspective and mm -hmm. has that evolved and how's that changed? And what, what have you learned about being Asian American? I guess before that simple question, do you now consider yourself an Asian American or do you still consider yourself an Asian living in America? Right. I wouldn't consider myself Asian American cause I wouldn't take away from what you guys have. And, you know, I feel like that's almost a bit of a, like that identity crisis that everyone faces where you're not like American enough for America, but you're like too Asian for America, but you're too American for Asia. And um, it is that like imposter syndrome, right? Where you're like, ah, oh, I don't really feel like I fit in anywhere. Um, so I would still consider myself just an Asian living in America. Um, and I think there are a lot of Asians living in America who I don't have that experience of being born and raised in America. So I wouldn't call myself Asian American because I think that's unique to people who were born and raised there. And what, what have you learned? Um, so talking about like the shift from pre-college to. Yeah. Now, well, yeah. What, what do you, what do you, what did you think? So, you, and, and you've spoken with a lot of Asian American women here for your project and through school and, and in your world travels. What is something that you learned that is unique and special and made you more curious about being an Asian American? Mm -hmm. um, I think the biggest thing is that the experience of living abroad compared to living in America isn't all that different. I think people think that it's very, very different. And actually, I feel like I'm able to relate to a lot of the shared experiences that people have, you know, little things like, Oh, my parents sending me to after school classes or um, eating, you know, Asian food and your friends being like, what's that? Um, just daily things that I've also experienced. And so it doesn't even feel like I'm singled out because I'm not quote unquote Asian American um, that I feel like everyone has really embraced all Asians wherever they're from and I think that's what's great about the community and that people are always very open to talk as well like in Asian cultures people don't really talk about things like we don't express what we're feeling we don't talk about what's going on we don't talk about what's right. wrong we only share our achievements and our dreams and goals and plans and only good things but nobody ever talks about like what they're going through or how they're doing. Um, and I think that's a part of me that's kind of changed as well, having a lot of Asian American friends and being able to have these open conversations. Like mm -hmm. even now, I think if I was to go back to Malaysia or to China and have these conversations, um, it would be kind of uncomfortable. Like I sense that. I sense that people are still kind of closed off. And even when I have some interviews, like I can, it takes a while to get people to open up um, about things, but I think in America, everyone is always 
just open and embracing of differences. And that's what I love about it. So let's talk about some of the content that you've been creating through your newsletter. Um, who do you talk to? What do you talk to them about? And what do you want your audience to feel and learn by reading your newsletter? Totally. So um, I'm in the first volume of the newsletter right now where I'm focusing on featuring women in fashion, media, and arts. And I chose these three topics because they're ones that are close to my heart and ones that I've had personal experiences in. And so I think that was a great starting point. And I've talked to a lot of different women from fashion bloggers to photographers to um, food videographers to like startup founders, um, apparel brand owners, just different fields here and there. And what I kind of want readers to gain from it is really just to not only enjoy the experience of reading it, like I try to make it at least readable. Like the language of a lot of publications are always very heavy. You know, they're not very colloquial. And I, what I love about Alaya is that I'm able to kind of just channel this conversational energy into the writing as if someone is listening to us talk. Um, and so that's why I keep this Q and a format without a lot of editing. Um, I don't like it to be like a story where I'm telling, I'm like taking their words and rewriting it. Like I just want their words, like just plain straight and the way it is, because I think they tell it better than I do. And I have a section called community news where I feature like four different news stories and that specifically about Asian Americans. And I think that's just a way to collect information and really put it on a page with, you know, just three, four sentences to summarize it so that people can just get their like little weekly dose of like good vibes and <laughs> from Asian Americans. And then the most important part is really that Q&A conversation where they get to learn about, you know, someone who they might not have felt like they connected to, um, like someone who's maybe got a lot of influence on social media or just like in the public sphere who you wouldn't typically be able to like pick up the phone and call. Like I do that mm -hmm. for them and I want them to feel connected to this person as if like, you know, they're your friend kind of thing. What's something that you learned from your guests doing this about yourself or about what's the favorite thing that you've learned? Um, I think like similar to what I've touched on before, the favorite thing that I've learned from it is just kind of being honest and having this like open conversation and being in like a little safe space when we have these conversations, like, um, guests have like cried in conversations because we've talked about really deep emotions that have you know built up over the years or it's just an emotional moment for them in their memory um and really kind of facing the challenges and grappling with it is something that's really really difficult and so i think talking about it really helps like i tend to ask questions that will help people open up um, I'm sure just like you do and to get people to start talking about what they're passionate about or what their journey is or what they've learned. Um, and I mean, I have quotes from people that I really, really like. If you would like me to read out some of them, um, I've collected a few just to share. Yeah, sure. Let's do that. Yeah. Very yeah. nice. Um, so one that I love from Christine Chen, um, who is you know, so a podcaster on Perfectly Imperfect with Regina. Um, so she says, um, if black people are still fighting for representation, we agents have a long way to go. As we have more agents pursuing quote unquote unconventional path and taking that leap of faith, more voices will be heard. I hope the change we will see is stories representing the complexities of us as human beings rather than our stereotypes. I think that's really important because it was very, very relevant in that time. Um, and I love that quote from her and Minji Chang, who I believe you're friends with as well. Oh, yeah. Minji's a very good friend. Yeah. Minji's awesome. And she says, at the end of the day, I have to accept that there will be consequences if I choose to be apathetic or opt out. The stakes are so high. I hope we can all recognize that not participating will cause a greater detriment to the community. We're interconnected. If everyone is suffering and hurting, it will affect us too. Equality for everyone means equality for us. We have to fight that fight. It's scary, but we got to do it. 
I think that's super relevant as well and really hits home, you know, to the point that we really do have to fight that fight because if we're not doing it as a community and you're doing it alone, it's going to be very, very difficult. And I love that she's kind of having this collective energy of being like everyone participating and that's really important. And I think the last one I would like to share is from Vanessa Hong. Um, She's a fashion blogger at um, her blog, which is formerly called The Hot Pursuit. And she says, one of the tragic results of tokenism is when one of us makes it to the table and you start believing that you have to keep the gate closed or else someone else from your community is going to take your seat. That for me is so heartbreaking. It's another way of how white supremacy has kept minorities in their place. In this context, she's talking about when you're presented an opportunity and that you might feel like you're tokenized because you're the one Asian at the table. And so because you're that one person, you're afraid of that being taken away from you. And I think that's very relevant because I've been in many, many rooms where I'm the only Asian person. And that still is to this day where I just look around, you know, it's very easy and to tell that you're just the only Asian person there. Um, and it's also a lot of responsibility on yourself to be the representation for your community in that group. Um, so I think she really touches on a good point there. There's a lot. I think there's there's so much to learn at the intersection of I- identity, gender, and, and what it means. Um, and I think we touched upon it earlier, but it's just this notion that I don't think we are, it's not a bad thing. It's just contextually, it's what our parents grew up with and sort of what our culture teaches us that even though we're so collectivist in some of the things that we think about as Asian cultures, doing things for the betterment of other people from an immigrant perspective or as an Asian American perspective, when we're trying to make it in this country is really foreign to us in a very weird way. And so I, I think 2020 has taught a lot of lessons into like you getting the degrees, you getting the job and you getting the things like, and just solely focusing on that actually hurts you in the long run, because if you're not growing the pie and if you're, you know, at, at some point, if you, keep doing that you're, you're you're going to be you're going to continue to be the only in in more and more high pressure and you know uh different rooms boardrooms courtrooms all these things but if you don't have an ecosystem there to support you as you go up the chain or whatever you want to do to build your your brand better bigger like you're not doing yourself any service you're actually doing a disservice because it's it gets lonelier at the top but you've many many people have spent their entire lives saying if only I can get into school X and work for company Y and get all these other things, then it's supposed to make things magically better, right? Because we're, and I'll use the term white adjacent enough where we think that if we get those things that they'll accept us and never, you know, treat us any differently. And Mm -hmm. that might be true for you. And if you've never been the victim or whatever of all these nasty things, then mm-hmm. consider yourself the exception, not the rule. But mm-hmm. I, I do think that just in general, like the more stories we tell, the more we elevate. And I know you get it because you're a journalist, but the complete and total amplified and compounded effect of you giving somebody else the opportunity to share their story one time is uncountable and immeasurable because they may take the confidence or the feel good of having some some time with you and go on to change the world because they're like, holy shit, somebody actually cared about what I thought. And, and that's, I think the most important thing about storytelling that isn't necessarily about, you know, filling podcast guests for me or finding people to fill your newsletter. It's really creating these platforms to not only inspire other people to be the journalist, but also if you are a journalist, if you're a newsletter owner, if you're a podcast host, like who are you actually inviting to speak on your stage? And and that I think is actually more important and more impactful than creating this the 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 stages themselves. And and what I mean by that is you and I know a lot of people who spend a lot of energy and time building platforms, right? Whether it's a podcast, whether it's a newsletter, a media company, a collective, whatever, right? Exclusive VIP clubs. And then they don't go the next step to make sure that the people who they invite 
come from the similar backgrounds that we do. Mm-hmm. And for whatever their business plans are and for whatever reasons, that's fine. But at the end of the day, if we're not the ones uplifting each other, mm-hmm. who's going to? Because exactly. we've spent, I've spent my entire life trying to be invited to places and I, I don't get invited as often as my white friends, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, we, this is a fact, yeah. right? And, yeah. and so what do you do then, right? Like, do you work mm-hmm. harder? Do you get the degrees? Mm-hmm. Do you get better jobs? Like I tried all that. Mm-hmm. And not, again, this is not like a, a victim speech, right? Like, whoa, like, yeah. but he, he, this is the reality of the systems that we try to exist in. Right. Like I fundamentally will not get invited to join societies and groups and clubs and things, period. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if then I'm going to build something, why why would I not want to create communities and brands and things that make other people like me feel included in that process? Because nobody else is also asking them to join their things. Exactly. And that I think is the piece that I think that I'm most excited for, for all of us and why... I'm creating Asian and Asian American specific podcast brands and communities because there are a lot of them out there, right? So there was a really, really fascinating article that uh, came out recently about Connie Chung recently. And mm-hmm. she was talking about her experiences working with Barbara Walters and different white lady. I can't, whose name I can't remember. <laughs> yeah. But she was basically account, you know, recounting her experience of how, even though they were supposed to be the, the, the trio she was always being treated differently and saying, you can't mm-hmm. pursue that story. You can't get that interview. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, and, and she wanted to be at the top of her game at ABC or NBC or whatever it was at the time. But what was not possible for her then is possible for us now, which is for the next Connie Chung to say, F that. I'm going to create the Connie Chung network and just interview the people that I want to on my own terms. And the world and the ecosystems exist for me to get rewarded, both professionally and financially, for me to make it an actual thriving business. And that's what I'm most excited for, for all of us. We don't need to rely on CNN, Huffington Post, New York Times. Even the liberalist of media organizations are still very white. And, yeah. and they tell our stories very, very differently. Yeah. And so that's what I think is, is, is most exciting. And so what do you share to somebody else who is thinking about that? What have you learned? Mm-hmm. You, you've learned a lot academically about the journalism business. You've worked at some of the biggest brands in the world. You are now uh, in a fellowship to share even more stories and you own this new platform. What do you tell somebody younger, maybe a younger version of you, Annie, um, an Asian American younger sister out there who wants to share stories. And as we all do, there's a lot of stuff in our heads that's telling us, no, don't do it. It's not worth it. Somebody else is doing it better, so on and so forth. What do you tell them? Share with us some encouragement to that audience. Yeah, I think the most important thing that I would say is just don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of the judgment that you might face. And don't be afraid to take that leap of faith. Um, I think because we're our biggest critics, and it's all up, you know, in our heads. And I criticize myself a lot too. So I can speak from personal experience that that happens. But I think there will be someone out there who will listen to your story. There always will be someone out there who will encourage you. And there will be someone out there who supports you. It doesn't matter if you don't please everyone. I think that's the most classic thing is that you can't please everybody you can't make everyone happy um and i think if you have just like an inkling to do something i think hold on to that and really don't give up on it and grow it into something um i think that if you have the ability to do so and you have the capacity and time and you don't need a lot like to start a platform like mine all i did was get a Squarespace account, (laughs) (laughs) get like a URL and just write on a Word doc. (laughs) That's pretty much all you need. I think with the technology that we have nowadays, um, it's very easy to start something like a platform, a news platform yourself. And if someone wanted to do that, I think it's totally doable. Um, And I take this from something else that one of the guests um, from Covery, they, the founders 
told me when I asked them what kind of advice they would share and they started their company. And so they just said, take it one step at a time. I think that's really good advice is just do one thing a day. Maybe today, you know, you find out how to build a website. Maybe tomorrow you find out how to use this recording system or how to, you know, register yourself as a business, things like that. I think you do it day by day. Um, and then before you know it, it becomes something actually feasible and real because I think at the time when I had this idea, it was just an idea. It didn't become anything until I really took the steps to do that. And I think that helps from my side to have a push, obviously that this was an academic project that it had started with. And, you know, there, that was the pressure that I had. Um, but I think if you just have that drive and that ambition to achieve your dreams, um, I would just say, keep going for it and don't give up even if, you know, you fail or you get rejections. I think it helps to really have a thick skin in a lot of industries and to just, I think journalism has taught me to cope with rejection really well from people. You get a lot of no's um, and you kind of get used <laughs> to that too. And so I just don't take it personally. I think, I think it's easier to let go of all the internal struggles and um, just all the external judgment that you're being thrown at um, and just kind of go for it. Just start and figure it out along the way. There's so much value in what you just shared, Annie. The thing about trying to please other people, I forget where I heard this from, but it, it became as, as, as a former recovering meth nerd, somebody shared it with me in this context. And I hope this way also might resonate with some of you. Statistically speaking, 7 billion people in the universe. Let's hypothetically imagine that you're trying to please all of them. It's a zero. <laughs> right. The, the, the likelihood yeah. that you can please 7 billion people is zero. Right. Yes, yeah. and, and so where, where is that magical number where N is greater than, let's say, 30? Like mm -hmm. it's still mm -hmm. zero. Right. Mm -hmm. It has mm -hmm. to be zero because their opinions change and their mm -hmm. opinions aren't based in fact. Right. So if you try to hit five moving targets at once, it's still a zero. Mm -hmm. If you bet on yourself, whatever it is, it's greater than zero. Right. And so why not focus on that? I think we mm -hmm. spend a lot of our time and it sucks. I get it. Our parents tie their love, their loyalty, their honor, all this other crap to <laughs> where you go to school, what you do for a living, who you marry, mm -hmm. all these stupid things that don't matter. So we, we're, we're taught from an early age to chase these things that we think validate our existence and our self-worth, but that's not the case. And so... I think it's such a wonderful thing that you're sharing with our listeners, especially the young folks out there. Focus on yourself. Your stories are worth it. They matter. And when it comes to starting, and I love the fact that you said, just start, right? Because when we talk to people who want to start something, whether it's a newsletter, media company, podcast, people focus on the technical stuff, right? Well, what website do I use, Jerry? What microphone do I get, Annie? So on and so forth. None of that shit matters. No, it really right. doesn't. No. I don't care if you're building your website on, you know, on GeoCities or AOL.com. Yeah. None of it. The, the fact that a lot of 99% of it is in your head. Mm -hmm. And the last 1% is for you to actually decide to do it. Because mm -hmm. yeah. you'll get better at the technical stuff, right? Totally. Yeah. Like the only, you know, like you're on month five, you have a graduate degree in journalism. This is like episode, like this is my 200 something recording of the year. Like yeah. <laughs> you get better through practice and you, and you, and you get friends and you, you know, find mentors and you, and you hire coaches to get better at what you do. But day one, like I don't, people don't think so, but so we're recording on December 28th, 2020, December 28th, 2019. I did not have a single podcast episode, zero. Mm -hmm. I uploaded my very first podcast episode on 1-1-2020. So in a year, I've built up my entire podcast business, my personal brand, my network, my everything. So it can be done in a year. Yeah. But so on day one, I was scared shitless, right? <laughs> and yeah. I don't, I haven't listened to my day one in a long time, <laughs> but it, it, it didn't sound this fluid. It didn't sound this confident, right? Because mm -hmm. it's frightening and I get it. Mm -hmm. And I'll add like, please please, please, please do not assume what other people will think of your work. 
Mm-hmm. It's a term that I learned called self-rejection. Self-rejection happens even before you produce anything because you've decided wrongfully that nobody will listen to you, read you, watch you. You're not even giving yourself a chance to swing the bat. Mm-hmm. So give yourself a chance, right? Because we get into our heads and go, oh, my voice sounds funny. My mm-hmm. word isn't, you know, especially for um, or, or some folks and friends who may not be as comfortable with English. My, my, my grammar is bad. My blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. I can come up with 20 different reasons why I shouldn't be doing this right now. And then, <laughs> and then you, you convince yourself that you don't. Yeah. But if, if you talk to, and, and behind the facade of all these successful people, if you really sit them down and you say, are you still scared when you do shit? I Absolutely. guarantee you the answer is yes. <laughs> yes yeah. oh, and, and more fear because the stakes are bigger, mm-hmm. right? You don't think the performers that go sing and, dance and play music at sold out stadiums are nervous that they're playing in front of 20 freaking thousand people. Right. <laughs> Always is, and, and we're telling you to create something in a vacuum and just throw it into a website and then it will <laughs> appear somewhere. Right. And, and you'd be surprised at the response and you have to give yourself a chance to create because people will write emails that will make you cry. People will write you notes that will make you so feel so freaking validated in the work that you're doing that you'd almost do it for free. Although, I probably can't, you can't do everything for free forever, but the, the heart feels so full based on people's reactions. And I think that's what I want people to walk away from with, with what you're doing is to take the education and the practice and the access and the privilege that you have of sharing these stories and now building a platform specifically for an audience for which there, again, you're right. There wasn't really a lot to start with. There are, I don't want to just, you know, um, there are a lot of great podcasts for and by Asian woman, somebody who we had on the show, Sheena Yap Chan, has a million downloads for Tao of Self-Confidence. We actually just gave out some awards yesterday for the Asian Podcast yeah. Awards and TED Talks, Bamboo and Glass, uh, unapologically. So we had more women than men apply. I think that's not surprising. Podcast of the year went to two Vietnamese-Australian women, mm-hmm. Tiana and Tui Wen, um, who have a show called Unapologetically Asian. And like, it's a global movement where... We're being empowered, not for the first time, but more empowered than ever to actually turn on our keyboards, turn on our microphones and speak and write, take pictures, record video and to share our stories. Because as you mentioned, we'll take one listener, we'll take one reader Mm because that changes lives, but we'll take a lot more and more will come. Guaranteed fact. If it's right in your heart and you get the processes right in your head to make it a sustainable business for you, I I think, you know, the, the world is, uh, you know, you're, you're unstoppable in this world. I, I want to wrap up the conversation, Annie, in, in the way that we do here on the show, which is, um, I, I know we've shared a lot of already inspirational and tactical messages to our listeners on how to start a media business, why you should start a media business and all these fun things. But in, in a typical Dear Asian Americans fashion, I'm going to start the letter. It's called Dear Asian Americans, just like the show name. And would love for you to share anything that you might want to from your heart to our audience on any given topic, it could be professional or personal. And so help us finish out the show and complete the letter, Dear Asian Americans. Dear Asian Americans, I am so grateful for everyone who's part of this community. And I encourage everyone to share their stories with us, talk to us, and open up and don't be afraid to speak up about it. I think it's so important that you know, me and Jerry, we're having this conversation right now. And I hope that this conversation will empower other people to do the same amongst yourself, amongst your friends, among your families, and to write your own letter to yourself and to other Asian Americans. Whatever it is, your story matters. Somebody's life will change because you started telling your story. and going to give you a spoiler folks that person whose life will change is you because when you invite weird things happen when you serve others when you create a platform to uplift other people's voices it may not happen immediately and it certainly won't happen in the way that you think it will but the goodness goes around the gratitude comes around you will have your life changed and that's why you need to do it So whatever, wherever you are in your life, 
if you're listening to this in early 2021, and just like we do every single year, you're making new plans, new changes, new resolutions to start the year off right. One thing that I ask you to commit to is, is starting your own platform, whatever it may be, and whatever feels comfortable to you. And when you do, when you build, when you create a stage, invite the people who look like you, invite the people whose experiences you learn from, or invite people whose life will change because only you can share a story that can resonate with them. So I think what you're doing is fantastic. I, I, I think, yeah, it, we need more of it. I also think that a lot of Asian folks suffer from self-limiting belief and self-rejection based on something already exists with the same exact business model. I disagree. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if I believe that, I would have never started any of this, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let, let's stop thinking in terms of there's already one, so there can't be two. Right. Because exactly. if you ever walk through a bookstore in America and see <laughs> how many crappy books there are <laughs> written by terrible people who should never write a book, but just because they think they can on the same damn topic, which is probably, they'll say inspire, but loosely <laughs> copied from every other book. Like it's, it's, it's insane. Copy paste. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And they're making a lot of money and they're having influence and they're changing their lives because they believe that they could. And again, entitlement privilege goes along. It's a deeply rooted conversation in entitlement privilege and access. However, welcome to 2021 where the internet is open and the internet is free for the most part. And we hope that you take the time to create something for yourself that your parents can be proud of because you're building upon their legacy and something that your kids can be proud of and that your grandkids can be proud of because it's going to be there for them too in 20, 30, 50 years, whenever they grow up. And, uh, you know, that's a part of the reason why I do it. I don't know if my kids will ever listen to this particular episode, but you know, when they're old enough to understand any of this, I want them to know what, you know, Appa was going through in 2020 and meet some of his friends and really, really be truly inspired to do whatever the hell they want, because not only am I saying it to them, I'm trying to live it myself. So Annie, thank you so much. You can find Annie Foremost and her project at alaya.news. That's A-L-I-A dot news. So dot news is sort of like a dot com. So don't put dot news dot com. It's just dot news. <laughs> you can also find Annie on LinkedIn, on Instagram, on Twitter. We will put all those links for you in the show notes where you can find her. It's really, really amazing and really a blessing and a pleasure to talk to other fellow creators in the in the storytelling space because I don't I don't ever see anybody who's doing similar work as competitors. We have mm. to be colleagues in growing the goddamn pie because our pie <laughs> yeah. is tiny right now. And and like I said, totally. we're we're playing in the four billion dollar kitchen and we're building exactly. pies. And so kudos <laughs> kudos to you, especially if you are an Asian woman listening and you want to hear the stories of other Asian women. Please sign up for the newsletter, share it with a friend. Um, We run a number of newsletters here as well at our company and it's a lot of hard work. And even though our work isn't validated by how many people follow or open, we look at those numbers and they sometimes make us feel really great about the work that we do or (laughs) make us us question everything that we're doing. So it's really been fantastic. Kudos to you and, and props to you for doing what you're doing. Wherever life takes you in 2021 and beyond, Annie, I wish you health and happiness and come back and join us next time. Thank you so much, Jerry. I'm so glad that we had this conversation. I'm really, really grateful that you invited me to share my story. And I'm glad that we shared the same goals. You know, like you said, building this pie, (laughs) we got to keep it going. Um, And I wish you the same happy holidays. And I hope the best for you in 2021 and wish you a happy new year. Thank you. See you next Thank time, you folks. Thank so much. Thanks again so much for tuning in. Uh, great story with Annie. Um, if you found this story insightful or uh, want to share, uh, please click that share button on your podcasting app or just take a screenshot and tag us wherever you can on social media at Dear Asian Americans at Dear Asian M on Twitter. Or um, you can find us on Clubhouse now. Just go to AsianM.club and you'll be able to uh, plug into our upcoming events. Um, Thanks again so much for tuning in. I know it's been uh, a rough time for a lot of folks, and we're just so excited to be able to um, share these stories with you in, in challenging times as we um, celebrate the Lunar New Year this year and then look forward to uh, a brighter and more positive 2021. 
Um, follow us wherever you can. Again, on social, uh, you can follow me personally at Jerry One across most channels, um, except on Instagram. I am at Jerry J One. Uh, donate to our Patreon page if you want to support us financially. You can do that at patreon.com slash Americans, or just shoot me an email. My inbox is always open. You can do hello at DearAsianAmericans.com, and we'd be happy to engage. Uh, looking forward to celebrating our 100th, an- 100th episode on our first anniversary with you on March 2nd, and excited to announce then uh, a quick change to our format as we uh, move forward into our second year. So thanks again so much for sh- letting us share our Asian American stories with you all. Hope you stay healthy, safe, and happy. And we will see you Friday this week for our next episode on 95. This has been episode number 94 of the Asian Americans with our guest, Annie Lin. And I'm your host, Jerry Wan. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time.